morning, church. Isn't it great to come together as his people and just sing about him? Sing to him for what he's done for us? Well, last week we were in Joshua, of course, like we are all summer. There's three things that we learned last week. Joshua and Caleb were older in age. Caleb being 85, Joshua being about 100 years old. What we found them, they were continuing to mentor a younger generation to take possession of the land. So just to to recap our three points from last week, we encourage us to live to mentor. Live to mentor for us in ministry, for us in our families. Pour into a younger generation the things of God so when they get to the point, they can turn around and do the same thing. Live to mentor. Number two, we we talked about living in the light of God's promises. We talked about how this world's going crazy, right? Seems to be. But God is in control. And we went through eight promises. And there's many, many more in Scripture. But we went through eight. We encourage you as believers to live in the light of God's promises. And then lastly, we live in the light that this is not our home. This is not our home. As we turn the news on, we look around and say, yep, it doesn't look good here. But you know what? I know Jesus, as John 14 says, he's going to repair a place for me. And that's what we look forward to. So hopefully, brothers and sisters, we focused on that this, this week. We live with eternity in view. We let the, the joy of Jesus permeate our lives. So we can say in our life, it's Jesus, only Jesus. Amen. So if you would, turn with turn your Bibles with me to Joshua 22. We have this week and we have next week, and then we close out Joshua. But this sermon titled is titled, The Big Misunderstanding. Today's story, we find this chapter in Joshua in very, very detail. And there's a reason for that. God, we believe, wrote the scriptures. Amen? We believe in the inspiration of scriptures. This is a doctrine that we as Christians would go to death for. Amen? This is a, this is a doctrine, the inspiration of scripture. We believe God wrote every word of this. And so this Joshua 22 is a story he wants in here for us to learn. So thinking about the title, to be misinterpreted, I think, is the most discouraging thing that could happen in our life. Have you ever been misinterpreted in your life? Yeah. It wasn't a fun time, was it? Because you had to try to explain yourself, right? Well, we see here the story of the two and a half tribes of Israel. They were greatly misunderstood for an action that they took. And we're going to explain that here in a few moments. But as we look at misunderstanding or misinterpretation, there's three things that happen in every misunderstanding. First, we have an act. Something happens, right? There is someone says something, someone does something. Number two, there's an offense. Someone is offended, right? Someone is offended. Act, offense, and lastly, what usually happens nine times out of, nine times out of ten is there is gossip. That doesn't happen in the church, does it? Never, yeah. That doesn't happen in our families, does it? No, of course it does. But we're going to see how these particular points apply into our story of Joshua 22. So let's begin uh, as we walk through Joshua 22. But in review, I just want to just remind us 
of what is happening with these two and a half tribes. So there's a map here in front of you that we'll be able to take a look again at the 12 tribes and how they are scattered here amongst their allocation of land, which we talked about last week. Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. Well, the tribes who were considered in the Transjordan, they are on the eastern part of the Jordan River. Now, if you remember our story, in Numbers 32, these three tribes talked to Moses before Moses passed. They wanted these, this property here. This is what the land that they wanted before. We even talk about Joshua crossing, in, crossing across the Jordan into the promised land. Moses and these tribes talked about having this land. Moses was not too keen on it. Why? Because do you remember the 12 spies who went over to spy out the land? The 10 that came back to Moses, what did they say? What was the reason why they couldn't take the land? There was giants in the land. We can't, we're scared. And for 40 years, the nation of Israel... Is that God? Okay, wait, hold on. The nation of Israel, the nation of Israel wandered when they should have been in the promised land. And so Moses here, when he got this request, he was like, are these, are these, are these tribes going to do the same thing? Are they going to want to go across the Jordan or not? But Moses struck a deal with them. With these tribes, here was the plan, that they could have this portion of land you'll see in front. They could have that land circle. But the men of war must cross over and fight with the other ten tribes. That was the plan. And after the land was possessed, after they inhabited the land, those two and a half tribes could then cross back over the Jordan and go back to their family. So this is how, that's the storyline. These, these tribes and their families stayed here while the nation of Israel crossed the Jordan, if you remember. Now, Seven years have passed. The conquest is done. They're possessing the land. Now these two and a half tribes are going back to their countrymen, going back to their home. So let's begin reading in chapter 22, verses 1 and through 4. At the time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, commanded you and have obeyed, circle that word obeyed, obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers. That word there, brothers, in the Hebrew is just it's talking about the, their, their brother, the, the Israelites, the other, other ten tribes. These many days, down to this day, but you have been careful to keep charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents and in the land where your possessions lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. See, what we see happening here with these tribes is they obey God. They did everything God asked them to do. Mission accomplished. So now it's time for them to go back to their families. They obeyed and followed God. I don't know about you. We are called to follow God. Not perfectly. But we are called to follow God obediently. See, we are a fallen people. We are going to fall. We are depraved. We are sinners, right? Right? And the husbands and wives, yes, you look at your husband. Yes, you are a sinner, right? Your kids, yes, we're all sinners. We're depraved. But we are called to God, follow God obediently. So that is our first point this morning. As Christians, as we've seen this, these two and a half tribes following and obeying God, leaving their families for seven years, they followed God obediently. Let me ask you a question this morning. 
What is it in your life that God needs you to be obedient in? Now, I want us to think about outside the, the, the basic, fundamental Christian things we are to do, the reading the Bible, the praying, the going to church. Yes, I, I trust that we are doing. They are important. But what about work tomorrow? What about with your family today, your relationship with your wife, with your husband? Are you loving them as the Bible commands us? Are you loving your children? Are we loving each other as the body of Christ? Are we loving our neighbors? Are we loving God? These are commands that God gives us in his scripture. Are we following God in those areas obediently? Obedience, I think, is one of the hardest parts of the Christian life, isn't it? Obeying God. Particularly when it comes to things that you don't feel like doing. Right? It's easy to obey God when it's things you enjoy to do. For instance, you know, I, lie, I enjoy going to a worship concert. I've been to, Judy and I, we've been to many worship concerts. We love going and worshiping. And, oh, we're, oh, we're raising hands. Oh, praise God. Amen. Love going to conferences where we can get built up and revived. Oh, this was such a, oh, I just needed, this was great. Because we enjoy doing those things. Going and worshiping God. Yes, we're obeying God and worshiping. Yes, we enjoy doing those things. What happens when we come back after being on a spiritual high? We're like, man, we have, we have strength and power for our spiritual journey. This was great. I'm glad I went that. Yeah, this was, this was awesome. But what if God was telling you to obey in something that was not enjoyable, but he wanted you to do? What if it was something that you were not enthusiastic about? Do you think it was easy for these men of war to leave their family for an unknown amount of time, we know now it's seven years, but hey, Moses said, listen, you can go, you can have this land, but you go until the, the battle is done. As far as we know, there was no communication between their families and these men. We know Old Testament military history, we the life of King David, David would send runners back and forth to tell people, hey, this is what's going on, send this letter to this general. But the text does not tell us that there was communication between the families of the Transjordan of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh and the men of war. Can you imagine, man, can you imagine being asked by God to leave your family for a long period of time? There's, there's a point that I want us to understand here before we get into the story of the miscommunication, what kind of men they were. These were men who followed God obediently. Are you, are we willing to follow God when it goes against our wants and our desires? It's, it's great to, yeah, I love doing this, I'll obey God in this, but it's something in our life where we're fighting, and you, we know God wants us to do this. God wants us to, to be better in this part of our life, and we decide, nah, we fight God. Are we willing to obey in that area? I love what James tells the early church in James 1, and 24. He says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself for if anyone if is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like a man who is intently at his looking at his face in a mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets that he what he was like all of us this morning looked in the mirror angel and i fixed our hair this morning right because it looked horrible after we got up all of us looked in the mirror and we changed something and we came to church. See, God expects us to do the same thing. When we look into his word and he tells us to do something, we need to change that. But for many of us, if we came to church 
after we looked into our mirror the way that we look in the mirror of God's word, we would look pretty scary spiritually. Be doers of the word. Church, we need to be following God obediently, always, in all things. So church, I encourage you, be doers of the word. We see these men, these, these men of war, obeying God, following God obediently. Let's continue on verse 5. Only be very careful to observe, Joshua tells these men, the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in him in ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. I want you to circle these words in your, in your Bible this morning. Observe. Love, walk, keep, cling, serve. These are all commandments. These are all things that God, Joshua, wanted these men to do. Observe the commandments. Love the Lord. Walk in all his ways. Keep his commandments. I love that word. Cling to him. Serve him. Parents of older children, do you remember the time when you sent your children out of the house? College, military, going to a job, getting out of the house. They're no longer your responsibility. I don't know if they're living back now. They're 50 years old living in your basement. I don't know, but you, you sent them out, all right? I, I, I see Joshua here like that. He's, he's sending these men that he has poured into. He's sending them home. And like maybe many of us who have parents think this, will, will, they, will they follow God? Will they stay in the faith? So think of Joshua as this parent sending his, his, his kids out into the world. And Joshua's concerned. Listen, you need to observe God. You need to serve God. You need to love God. You need to walk with him. You need to cling to him. Verse 7. Now to the one half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with much, much, much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, with much clothing. Divide the spoils of your enemies with your brothers. Now I want to just kind of explain something here. The dividing of the spoils of war was something that... So let me just say it this way. When you, are, when you fight for something and you get the spoils of war, do you think it's fair to give it to the people who didn't fight? No. But Joshua here is saying, hey, your family member, extended family, you get the spoils of war, you take it and you share it amongst the individuals. They are, they are part of you. King David put this into law in 1 Samuel chapter 30, a statute that he put into law. And the story goes that the Amalekites attacked Israel. They took David's two wives, took some belongings of Israel. So David, being the warrior he was, got 600 men and followed after him. They came to a point by a ravine where King, the two, 200 of these men said, Dave, King David, we can't, we can't go anymore. We need to rest here. He's fine. You rest here. You stay with the things. We'll go finish the battle. He went with 400 men, got his two wives back, took care of the things, got the spoils of war, brought them back, and distributed it to the 200 men that were there waiting by the baggage, as David said in 1 Samuel 30. And as he was coming back, the men who fought with him said, Why are we distributing the spoils of war? They didn't fight with us. 
And David says, listen, we give the spoils of war to those who fight and for those who stood by the baggage. So he was following after what Joshua did here with the spoils of war. It went not just to the people who were in battle, but to everyone in the tribes. Verse 9, so the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home from the people of Israel, which is in the land of Canaan, to go back to their land of Gilead, their own land in which they possessed themselves by the Lord through Moses. See, not only I believe they followed God obediently, these men, but I believe they followed, them. He, he, they followed him willfully. Church, second application point this morning is be willfully obedient. Let me ask you a question. Can you be compliant and not obedient? Young kids, yeah, young people, you understand? You can be compliant. What's compliant? You're going to do this because you know what's coming down the pike with your parents if you don't. Think of back when you were growing up. You know, I, I can remember growing up. I remember sitting there having conversations with my dad in my room by myself. Oh, I hate my dad. I mean, I'll do this. I would never say that to his face. I wouldn't be standing here today if that happened. We've had that, right? Why? We're compliant. I'm doing it because I don't want to get my back end tore up and a spanking. Willfully obedience. It comes from the heart. I love the illustration of, of, a, of a dad who was telling his son, sit down, sit down. And the son got angry. Sit down, son. He started sitting down. I'm not going to tell you again. Sit down. He sat down with that anger and he told his dad, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> Isn't that like some of us in our Christian life? We're compliant because we don't want to upset God, but we're not doing out of love for him. We're just complying. I think there's two beautiful examples in Scripture. The one man who comes to mind of compliance is Jonah. Jonah was compliant. God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them about salvation of God. What did he do? Oh, he went to Nineveh. No, he didn't. He turned around, jumped on a ship. Went to Tarshish. So God used a ship, God used a crew, God used a storm, and he used a big fish to spit him in the direction he needed to go. So he goes and he preaches to Nineveh. And guess what they do? This, the, the worst nation at that time. Guess what they do? You know the story? They turned. And they became followers of God. And Jonah just celebrated and worshipped in the streets. That's right, is that right? Is that how the story goes? No. He sulked. He turned around, went outside the town, sat by a plant outside, and, and complained and whined to God. He was upset that they turned to him. Jonah complied. But what's great about our God is that despite our frailty, God still gets the glory in what we do, Right? I think of Jacob as the man who willfully obeyed. Jacob, man, if I was Jacob, I don't know how I would have handled it. Jacob worked for his wife Rachel for seven years. And then it comes time for their wedding. And Laban, his father-in-law, surprises him and gives him Leah, the older daughter, the not-so-cute one. Okay, that's exactly what Scripture says. And he's like, what did you, you do, Laban? You, you, you promised me Rachel. Man, that's not how we do things here. That's what he, that's what he said. So I, we, we marry off our older daughters first. So he worked for another seven years to obtain Rachel. Fourteen years, two wives. I don't know how that would work out in our culture. 
But listen, Jacob willfully obeyed because why? He loved Rachel. Church, we think about this concept of obeying and willfully obeying God in our life. Do we willfully obey God because we love him? Do you love God that way? That you'll do whatever he asks you to do, and you'll do it willfully. The reason why I share these points with us this morning before getting into our stories is because I want us to see how godly these men were of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. Because they're going to hear in a few moments we're going to read, they are going to be accused of breaking the law of God. So I wanted, I wanted us to set up, okay, these men are godly men. They obeyed God. They followed God obediently, and they, they obeyed him willfully. So now comes the part of the story we want to get into, the misunderstanding. So let's look at Joshua 22, 10 through 12. We'll begin reading here, verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Circle that word imposing. In the Hebrew, that means it was brilliant, it was large, it was impressive. Historians tell us this altar could be seen for miles. This was not a little bitty, itty altar. They just put a couple rocks together. This was built, it was large, it was impressive, and could be seen for miles. Okay, so you got that picture? Joshua sends them off. They go and they build this altar before crossing into the Transjordan. There's, here's, that's where the problem is. So just get to keep that in your mind. Verse 11, And the people of Israel underline these three words here. And the people of Israel heard it said heard it said. Now I'm going to take some freedom in this verse here and kind of talk the way we would talk in today's world. So here's what they heard said. Hey, did you hear that Reuben and Gad and those tribes of Manasseh, do you see they built this altar in the land before crossing over the Jordan? The side that belongs to us? They built this altar. Did you, did you, did you see that? Did you hear that? So you kind of get, get the language. You see what they're doing here? You see what they're doing? Verse 12, and when the people of Israel heard this, again, when they heard it said, hear say, when they heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh. They gathered at Shiloh to go and just find out really why they built that temple. Is that what it says? They, 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 they gathered at Shiloh just to, to find out, to really, to really go show some love to their brother, just to, to make sure that they were on the same page. No, what's it say? They went to go make war against them. Hey, these individuals who fought for them for, with, with seven years together, this altar is built, and they're going after the juggler with them. And they disobeyed God. They had to have disobeyed. We're going after them. We're going to make war. Now, we must understand the ten tribes. There's a reason why they are this upset because they feel that these two and a half tribes broke the law of God. And that law is this. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 12. It's the law of sanctuary. God said it with Moses. Listen, Moses, I'm going to give you, I'm the person that's going to give you the places where Israel will worship. I will give you the place where they will make sacrifices for me. And we understand these two and a half tribes that were have gone over across the Jordan or on their way over, they built this altar. So they're saying, wait a minute, God did not tell us to set up altar there. We can't. So they think that they are disobeying 
Deuteronomy chapter 12. Well, it wasn't Deuteronomy chapter 12 back then, but they were disobeying the law of God. Because we know there's three places that the nation of Israel could worship. Shiloh, Gilgal, and eventually Jerusalem. So if you're the ten tribes, you're like, man, they are disobeying God. But I want us to go back to those words. They heard it said. No one found out for sure what they were doing. They knew there was an altar built, but no one wanted to get the full scoop, the full story. Let me ask you a question, church. How many conflicts have been started because of hearsay? Everyone's like, ugh, it's almost every one. How many relationships have been hurt because of hearsay? Not getting the whole story, not fitting the whole story in the context here. And that's what's happening here in this story. Again, as we said earlier, God put this story, I believe, in Scripture for us to learn from. It's just not a history. Yes, we, we, this is part of Israel's history, but for us, 3,500 years removed, we can learn and take application of how to handle conflict. Amen? God's Word's inspired. It's for everyone all the time. Here's five suggestions. I got this from an, another pastor, so I can't take credit for these questions, but I thought they were good to stick in here in this message here this morning. When you are approached with hearsay, whether your job, your church, your family, it applies. First question you ask, why are you telling me this? Why are you telling this? Well, we know why that happens. The first response usually, well, I'm telling you this because I just, I'm just concerned. I just want you to pray. I, I love that one. Why are you telling me the second? Where did you get that from? Where, where, where did you get that information from? Number three, have you talked to that person directly? Are you sure that's what happened? Did you talk to that person? Number four, ha have you checked the facts? You're that's a lot of questions to ask. Number, and lastly, can I quote you on that? Now, let me just be very, very honest with you. If you ask these questions to someone who gossips or someone who likes to promote hearsay, you will never be approached again. You won't be. They're like, man, they, you know, I, that's just way too much questions to answer. I ain't going to deal with it. I just like hearing the, hearing the gossip and I like spreading. I don't need to do all that homework. But aren't they five great questions to ask to stop the hearsay, to make sure the facts are right? Listen, this story here, this, 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 they're going to war because of hearsay. Get the facts straight. Let's look at verse 13 as we continue on our story. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. Phineas, underline Phineas, he is a key player here. You want to know who Phineas is? We'll talk about him in a moment. The son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clan of Israel. So if we were going to put this in church terms of who was coming to confront the two and a half tribes, these are the pastors, these are the deacons, these are the elders, they're coming with the big guns to approach Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. They meant business. Again, we go back to that they're going, they're going to make war. Now Phineas, we know who Phineas is. Phineas was the grandson of Aaron. He is in the priestly line, and Phineas became famous in Numbers 25. And the story is the, 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 one of the greatest plagues that Israel seen. 24,000 Israelites died in Numbers 25 because of their immorality with Moabite women. And God took care of that sin. What happened here? Moses met with the leaders 
And at that very moment, Phineas was part of that leadership team. A Moabite woman came, took an Israelite man, and went into a tent to commit immorality. Phineas, seeing it happen, went, grabbed the spear, walked into the tent, and drove the spear through both of them. As soon as he did that, the plague stopped. And we read through Numbers 25. At the end of Numbers 25, God talks about Phineas this way. Phineas is going to be in the, in the, is in the priesthood, in the priest line, because he was zealous for my honor. This is the kind of guy Phineas is. He's, he's either black or white. There's no gray area with Phineas. It's either right or it's wrong. And so when we understand Phineas, hey, he was looking at them. He's like, okay, they're disobeying God. Now we understand he needed to get some more information. But this is, I think the intention of Phineas was right. He wanted to honor God. He didn't want no one breaking the law of God. So he confronts the two and a half tribes. Look at verse 15. And they came to, I'll just shorten it up, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gideon. And here is what Phineas says. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, this is what we heard. What is this breach? Now that word breach in the Hebrew means treason or treachery. So when you hear the word treason in our country, what do you think of? You think of someone hanging from a new Why? Because in our, in our early days, when someone was treason, they were in a firing squad. You, you got killed for being a treason. So this word here, breach, this is a, a huge accusation. It's a huge accusation they committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord and building an altar this day in rebellion. You're committing treason. You're committing rebellion against God. This was the accusation. This was an assumption of their heart. And we understand when we assume something, that is the lowest form of communication. When you assume something of someone. This was not a confrontation to get the scoop and to sit down and have a heart-to-heart conversation. Remember, they were going to war. The leaders were approaching these tribes to bring judgment. The next several verses, 17 through 20, just going to give an overview. Phineas reminds the nation of Israel of past sins that affected them as a nation. We, we, we read, again, he addressed the immorality of Numbers 25, as we just talked about. He says, listen, remember Numbers 20, remember this story when they were immoral with Moabite women. This is what God did. And they also, he also brings up, around verse 20, the sin of Achan. And I love what he said about the sin of Achan, and I think this was the greatest fear for Phineas. If these two and a half tribes were committing treason, if they were committing a treachery against God, verse 20 says, remember, Achan did not die alone. What's Phineas really trying me to get here? What's he, he's a little nervous and scared about for this and concerned about. Listen, if you're going to commit and break the law, it just doesn't affect you. Remember we thought about Achan? It affected his whole family. It killed 35 men in the Israeli army because of his disobedience. So that's the accusation. Judgment. They're calling judgment against treachery, treason. So what's the response of this two and a half tribe? What would you, how would you respond with someone coming to you that way? Think about that. How would you respond? You'd be like, come on, what are you saying? Let's go, right? Here's, remember, remember, remember our beginning of our message? What kind of men were they? They were godly men. They handled this beautifully. Again, a perfect example when confrontation, when accusations come your way. This is a beautiful picture of how to handle 
Look at verse 21. The people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and in answer the, uh, said an answer in the heads of the family of Israel. And this is, I, I love these, this verse here. The mighty one God, the Lord. He repeats it. The mighty one God, the Lord. He knows. And let Israel itself know. If it was rebellion or in breach or in treason of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Their heart was right, wasn't it? They were not building an altar against the law of God. What did they say? And I, here's what they, they, they invited God into this conversation. They mentioned mighty one, God, the Lord. That's El, Elohim, and Yahweh. Three words of God that were treated with respect. They were not flippantly just using the word God. They were strict and steadfast. Listen, God. If our hearts, you know our hearts, if it meant to, to get away from the law of God and to a, a, a disobey the law of God, then take us out. Spare not our life. This is where their heart was at this accusation. Here's the reason why they built it. Jump down to verse 24. No, we did it. They built this altar from fear that in time to come for children might say to our children. So the children on the west side are going to say to the children to the east side. What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the, in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Jump down to verse 27 as we continue on the reason. But to be a witness between us and you and between our generation after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings so that your children will say, no, not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. This altar was an altar of remembrance to remember what God had done for the nation. What was Phineas's response? Look at verses 30 to 34. We're just going to look at a couple of verses to see his response. Look at verse 31. Phineas says to the people of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh today, we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. In verse 32 to 33, he goes back to the land of Israel, to Canaan, and tells them the good news. Verse 34, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, called this altar witness, for they said it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So as we go back to our question at the beginning of our time together, why so much detail in this story? There's a lot to unfold here in, in dealing with relationship and community. That's why I believe there's a principle of community here amongst the nation of Israel. God wanted the generations to come, us, 3,500 years removed from this story, to learn and understand how to communicate, how to handle conflict, and how to show love and grace to our brothers and sisters and our families and our marriages and our communities and our churches. So as we close this morning, I want us to just look at four applicable points about this particular story in the area of communication. This could have ended bad. But Phineas, because he was a priest and because he was discernment, he went even as angry as he was against the holiness of God. He listened to his brothers and relationship was restored. 
So here are four areas in which we can learn from this story, how we handle our conflicts, how we handle assumptions and situations. Number one, be watchful for obvious mistakes. What that means is, by, by no means are we saying Phineas should not have approached the two and a half tribes. No, he, 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 did, he did what he had to do. I say that there's going to be things maybe in the church that need to be approached. If we're teaching something that shouldn't be taught, I would hope that you would say, hey, pastors, you know, there's something going on I just, I'm just not quite sure of. We're not saying to ignore it, to put, put it, push it under the carpet. No. Be watchful for obvious mistakes. Now, here's how you handle those. Number two, don't judge motives. Don't suppose without the facts. As we said before, how many people and relationships and conflicts have been ruined because people just didn't have the facts, right? Don't judge motives. You don't know. Phineas did not know the motives of the two and a half tribes of Israel, did he? Until he had a conversation with them, which leads us to number three. Be truthful and discuss the matter. Jesus gives us an example, particularly in the area of sin. If sin is in the camp and you as a brother are offended, we as, Ma as Jesus says in Matthew 18, you go to that brother and what do you do? You have a conversation. If he turns away from that sin, you've gained a brother. Conversation. Finding out the facts. Hey, what's going on here? It looks like this, but tell me. Be truthful and discuss the matter. Maybe, maybe you're a person I don't do confrontation. Well, friend, that's very dangerous. Because even in your families, your friendships and church members, there's times where people need to be confronted. You need to have that conversation so you have all the facts and you can make the right judgment, which leads us to the last point this morning. Be gentle and gracious in our method. Be gentle and gracious. I love what Paul told the Christians in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. When you approach a confrontation, what's, our, what's, the, what's one of the first things that we kind of do? Like maybe like a Phineas, I'm going to show him or her. Yeah, you did this without getting the facts, without understanding the full story. When I think of the word serving or doing something in grace gently, I, I think of foot washing. Now, I've never really participated in foot washing. Some churches do that, and that's fine. Um, I just never have. Um, other, in some cultures, particularly in New Testament culture, we read Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and the purpose for that was what? People would come in your house, their feet are dirty, you wash their feet. Jesus was using a sign of servanthood. You do it gently, gracefully. Think about that when you handle a conflict, when you approach a brother, maybe it's in sin. Do we still handle it gently and gracefully, or do we look at a feet wash? If we are washing their feet, we'd have a Brillo pad, <laughs> scraping the dirt off because we want to get it off. How do you handle these situations? Do you do it gently? Do you do it out of love? Do you do it gracefully? We need to be graceful in our approach as we confront even sin. Even sin. What's the purpose of church discipline? It's restoration. 
That is, that's our goal. It's not to get people out of here. Yeah, don't talk to that person. No, you want to love them. Yeah, there's, there's a point at times where the individual's heart is hard, and they're going to walk away after being confronted, and that's on them. They have to, we continue to pray for that individual and love that individual and show grace. Close with this illustration this morning. There is a a deer antler, or, or actually a skull of two deers in Baba Haas in Germany in a monastery. Kenny, you'll like this. And it's, the, 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 the antlers are attached together. So they're hanging in the, on the wall with the, with the skull and the antlers. On. You get, get the picture of two deer that have fought and they died this way. The story is that these two deer fought because they starved to death. And that's what usually, usually what happens. If a deer gets caught, one's not going to, to give in. They're going to continue to fight. And usually that usually happens during mating season, right, Kenny? The deers are fighting for a woman. They're not going to give up. These two deer die with their antlers connected. And now it's a sermon illustration 100 years later. But isn't that sometimes a picture of the church when we have conflict? We don't want to give. I'm right, you're wrong, you're right, don't. And we, what do we do? We damage the church. And we just kind of compromise at times. We need to compromise. Show love and grace. Have conversation. And address the issues at hand with love, gentleness, and mercy. See, we learn from Joshua 22 that Phineas went there with guns loaded, man. He was ready. They were disciplining the law of God. But after they walked away, he heard their story. Relationship was restored and mended together. So, church, as we think about conflict, as we think about, and we probably have conflict every day in our lives, these are, these are things we can use. In the area of the church, yes, we need to confront sin when sin is present. And we pray that brother and sister confesses or tells us the full story so we get the bigger picture. We can address those things. So God gives us these stories in the Old Testament, I believe, for us to learn and to grow and to apply to our lives today. So hopefully this week we can look at this story and take something from it to apply to our lives this week. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for all you've done for us. We pray, Father, you would help us in the area of, of confrontation, the area of, of, of even gossip and hearsay, that we need to get the full story, get the facts right before we take it to someone. Lord, help us, Father, to understand, too, as, as, we, as we learned earlier, these men that built this altar, Father, they were, they were men who followed you obediently. They followed you willfully. And, Lord, that's the kind of Christian we need to be. We need to follow God obediently and willfully because we love you. And if we do that, Father, we are going to resolve conflict. We are going to love our brothers in Christ. We are going to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to love the world. We're going to share with the world the gospel. So allow us, Father, to leave here with a new perspective on how to love one another and care for one another and do it in grace and gentleness. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Let's all stand up and sing the chorus of his mercy is more. Praise the